0: You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, a very familiar passage. Just we'll spend a little time in as we seek to open up Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question Twenty Six. But we'll begin with the reading of God's Word. Lend your attention. This is the very Word of God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then question 26 asks, How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. King Arthur is such an excellent king. <laughs> Commend you the Once and Future King again, which I recently finished and one of the most striking scenes in the Once and Future King is uh, when Lancelot first meets King Arthur. And after departing, uh, Lancelot declares uh, his love for Arthur. It's worth pointing out that when, when the Bible speaks of love, um, it's much closer to fealty, loyalty. It, that's probably closer than our sort of sentimental notion. It's certainly not like a Hallmark card, that's for sure. Um, there is a, a devotedness. Certainly there's adoration and an intensity of affiliation in it. But it's a, it's a fealty, a, a devotedness. So even uh, you think of Jonathan declaring his great love for David. There's this fealty loyalty that undergirds it. Lancelot declaring in that moment uh, his love for Arthur. Have you ever loved a magistrate? Probably not. It kind of frames our current condition. <laughs> no, you, don't, you don't love rulers, you hate rulers. <laughs> that's just part of it. No, that's part of sin. The problem isn't with kings. The problem isn't with the fact of rule. The problem is with sin filling a position with cruelty and sin responding to sin, sinfully, as we saw this morning. (laughs) Lancelot loved Arthur. There's a scene in War and Peace where the young Rostov is just dying to get a glimpse of the emperor. Because he loves him. Russia loves him. They love him. There is a delight in being under them. It's so strange to us. Until we confess Christ is Lord. He's our king. And all of the potential beauty that exists with the fact of king that there is one who is above us. <laughs> Married with the excellence of the person and the work inhabiting that position above us. Oh, it starts, it starts to flicker forth then. Belonging to this king Being this king's servant. Being a knight in a kingdom like no other. I hesitate to use that language because of various bad thinking about what it means to be a knight. But there's something lovely about rightly understanding. That's what Paul says, isn't it? In Ephesians 6, that's knight language there. But we get All sorts of wonky. And we think that means like the Crusades. It doesn't mean the Crusades. It means virtue. It means tasting of eternal life now. It means glorifying God now as the reign of the King comes to pass. a reign that's characterized by life, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We could potentially lose something in this moment of raging suspicion towards all rulers. What we potentially lose is the fact that we serve a ruler who is above all rulers. And we are members of a kingdom, the likes of which there is no equal. The loveliness of which is unsurpassed. And we are servants of this king. Because he has purchased us with his blood. So we consider this morning the loveliness of our king and the loveliness of his kingdom. And we'll take the three parts of the confession as our three points. The first is subdued in love. The second is ruled and defended in grace. And the third is enemies restrained and conquered in power. So first, subdued in love. We'll try to root each one of these in a particular passage of scripture and you could go any number of places through this but colossians 1:13 and 14 is particularly striking how do kings conquer how do kings subdue in blood that's what they do you read any history book empires are forged in battle victory blood conquest tale as old as time, really. How does our king conquer? How does the Lord Jesus Christ subdue? Look at Colossians 1, 13, and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a number of things that are worth noting. Is everyone in the kingdom of the sun? No, there's two domains here. There's the domain of darkness and there's the domain of the beloved sun. So not everyone is a participant in what we call the sun's reign in grace. Who's a participant in the sun's reign in grace? The redeemed. Those to whom the gospel has come and has brought out of sin and death under the sway, the rule, the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone is a participant in the reign of grace. We distinguish in Reformed thinking, between the reign of the Son in grace and the reign of the Son in power. All things are under the sun, as we're going to see. There is nothing that bests the sun. There is nothing over which the rule of the Son does not extend. But not all are a participant in his reign in grace. Not all have been subdued unto the Son by the gospel of power by the grace of God extended in the Lord Jesus Christ so to the question how does our king subdue us we answer not by killing us but by dying in our stead because that's what redemption is the son of man came not to serve Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a a ransom. It's the same word, same family of words, a ransom. And this is the wellspring of the atmosphere of this kingdom. Remember the conversation? I just heard a sermon on this. It cut me to the heart. Conversation the disciples were having as Christ was about to go to the cross. What was the conversation they were having? Christ is about to die for them and they're talking about who's the greatest among us? Oh, that's shameful. What does Christ say? No, no, no. The, the Gentiles lord authority over one another. This is, this is not to be the way of it among you. Let the one who would be greatest become least this is the kingdom (laughs) the reason why this is the kingdom is because it is the rule of this king who gives his life who washed the feet of the disciples that's the king that's how he subdued us by standing in our stead drinking the cup we should have drank And by virtue of that ransom price and its effervescence, (laughs) loveliness, come on, that's gorgeous. It's magnificent. He's wooed us, subdued us, broken our hearts at our selfish and sinful ways and then knit them together in the glory of the gospel. That's how this king conquers the beauty of his person and the excellence of his work, which woos us out of darkness into light. Arthur wooed Lancelot. Lancelot declared his love for Arthur because Arthur set forth a vision of knights becoming champions of right. Lancelot was already going to be an excellent knight. But he lacked a vision and a direction. And then King Arthur says, well, what if, what if knights, instead of championing their own glory, using their strength and power to establish their name, what if they harnessed that in the service of good, in the service of what was right? And Lancelot was, oh, this is, this is a king like no other. This is a kingdom like no other. The Lord Jesus Christ sets forth himself in the stead of sins. He says, this is what you deserve, and I'll take it. I will bear it in myself. This is what you deserve, the cross, forsaken, curse, and I will bear it. I will drink this cup so that the cup of victory, salvation, life, passes unto you oh this is a king like no other this is a kingdom like no other the lord jesus christ has subdued us unto himself in grace as the gospel presents this king as the one who does what none could do drink the cup of wrath and bring about the cup of blessing and this has come unto us how excellent that power is consider even just in stark contrast to what we considered this morning about the power and the heinousness of sin evil can sometimes seem unconquerable right like sin it seems unconquerable like no who can there's a scene in lord of the rings right there in the Helms deep, and Theoden King knows that they're beat. Like, the walls have been breached. Like, this is an army like no other. This is fueled by hate like no other. That's what he says. What can men do against such reckless hate? This is a power the likes of which no one can stand. Like, sin is a power the likes of which no one can stand against. The Lord Jesus Christ power of his resurrection. Paul calls it the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. The po- like it's a power. It's a power that even puts sin to shame. It's a power that can deliver from bondage, the bondage of sin, the bondage of darkness. This is of great encouragement to us. Because we still feel the baleful effects of sin, but we serve a king who has conquered the world. We serve a king whose reign is a power the likes of which sin cannot stand against. That is a hopeful word. Consider how much hope that brings us as we look at our loved ones who are still lost under the power of sin. It's like, phew, think about the particulars of it like well there's no saving that person that's what we're tempted to think isn't it like phew, never the, the gospel's never going to reach for that person like it's like it reached for you <laughs> reach for me whoever it reaches for it raises from the dead <laughs> no no this one's only partly dead no no they're all all dead <laughs> and the gospel reaches for dead hearts It reached from my heart when I was dead in my trespasses. It blew me away. Yours, the same. Everyone who confesses that Christ is Lord has been raised from the dead. That is not a natural power. That is a supernatural power which Christ alone wields. And he delights to wield unto the glory of the name of God. Don't lose heart over those friends and family, neighbors whom you've been praying for, the flesh would look at their saying and say, it's hopeless. It's like, yeah, it is hopeless by virtue of the powers of nature. It is hopeless by virtue of this age that is passing away, but the age to come has broken in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep praying. Keep praying. It's a great encouragement for us as we make our frail stand against the flesh. Flesh which would best us every time left to ourselves, every single time. But we serve a king who has bested sin, and whose throne of grace and mercy is always open. And he is constantly saying, flee to me, children. Flee to me. I ever live to make intercession for you. Flee to me, children. Flee to me. I am ever ready to help in time of need. Come to me, children. Come to me. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. There's a word of hope in knowing that this king has conquered. He is subdued. Us to himself, indicating he is favorably disposed to sinners. For Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He's favorably disposed unto us. And we see that also in that he rules and defends us. And Matthew 28 highlights this ongoing, faithful administration of Christ's reign. Jesus came and he said to them... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does it mean that Jesus rules over us? That's the language it uses from the confession, right? Rules and defense. What does it mean that he rules over us? I want to extend it even prior to our time in the faith, which is kind of wonderful. Even prior to coming to faith. Why did I say that? G- Jesus prayed for us in John 17. He prayed for So even prior to coming to faith, he's providentially moving us towards himself. He knows who his own are. He died for every single one of us. So, in that sense, his rule over us and kindness didn't commence with our coming to faith. Yes, you acknowledge that something very real changed at the time of faith. You go from darkness into light, you go from wrath unto favor. That's true, and we say that. But he prayed for you. He prayed for you then, back then, back then, back then. <laughs> Which suggests what? Even then he was shepherding his own to that encounter with the gospel that would bring them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we can see the rule of the Son in providence. I can think back even on my own life, just how many encounters with an end that was dark that he spared me. Physical destruction, moral destruction. All of it, the rule of the son, extended unto his sheep, bringing them to himself. But what we mean by rule here is plainly the life of discipleship. That's what Matthew is highlighting here. Notice how he ties the authority in heaven and on earth to what then takes place in the church, right? Right? That's what this is. This is the church. Okay, this is what you're going to do until the end of the age. What are you going to do? You're going to make disciples. That's what you're going to do. You're going to show people how to follow me, the king. That's what you're going to do. So Christ rules over us. He brings us into conformity with his teaching, his direction. And this he does. Through the church the life of discipleship learning what it means to exhort one another each and every day to remember we're not our own bought with a price all the decisions all the directions ultimately are at the disposal of the son we belong to him we go where he calls us I pray all your decisions are being subjected to the son's remarkable latitude, remarkable liberty that the sun gives us in terms of deciding this course over that course. But we're always in need of wisdom. We're always invited to come to the throne and say, I belong to you. I'm your servant. I serve at your disposal. It's like, at the end of the day, I want to go where you want me to go. How frequently the sun says, well, where, where do you want to go? Like that, that's a big part of it. <laughs> We go where he calls us, we also go how he calls us. meaning we walk in the way that he walked. That's the loveliness of the culture of the kingdom, that spiritual reign of Christ being brought more to more and more upon our hearts. What does the rule of Christ look like in the life of believers? Love, joy, peace, patience kindness. That's the reign of Christ. Am I making this point compellingly enough? Like, that's, that's why his reign is so much more excellent than any other reign. The best of kings can control bodies in space. This king can actually create love. What king can do that? Even as a father, I'm like, love your brother. (laughs) He loves you. (laughs) Please love him. And it's just not getting through. Like, I can't do it. (laughs) Chaos at dinner. I'm like, peace. Please still these waters. Nope. Can't do it. (laughs) I can bring the law. Like, look, if you don't get it together, there's going to be consequences. (laughs) That's The best that earthly kings can do. That's what Arthur realized, incidentally, in his reign. He comes to the end of his life and he has this understanding. He's like, oh, might can't create virtue. It can restrain evil, but it can't make people good. Christ produces the fruit of the Spirit in hearts. This is a king like no other. And His rule is a reign like no other, brought to pass in our hearts and our minds. Now tasted, but one day all in all, and He promises to defend until that day. There's a lovely observation in this that I think is lost in the English translation. I mean, my Greek is not as good as my Hebrew. I'm going to say that right now. But as I'm reading this, He says. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Most translations are in there, and I, behold, I am with you always. Which is true. That's true. But unless my Greek is really, really bad, which is possible, but it's not likely. It says, behold, I am with you every day. That opens it up differently for me. Because one, it tells me that I'm going to need this every day. Like there's a, there's a, Sequence of moments that this has to be true for, for me not to sink. <laughs> and that every day, that constant iteration, that moment by moment reign and rule and presence of Manuel. Every moment, every day, I'm with you. I'm with you. Every moment, every day, I'm with you. I'm with you. And this is a source of great confidence for the church. A little dorky here in the exegetical uh, observations for my biblical theological students out there. This is lovely. Uh, genealogy opens with this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, son of uh, Abraham, son of David. What are the promises to Abraham and David? You're going to sit on an eternal throne forever, above all others. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. (laughs) Go forth and make disciples from all nations. (laughs) And then the great promise. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. His name will be Emmanuel, And behold, I am with you every single day. It's all right there. (laughs) And this is the source of the church's life and confidence. For the people of God have always derived their confidence not from themselves. This is Gideon towering in a hole because the Midianites are too numerous. What does he say? The Lord is with you. Go and conquer. What does he tell Joshua? Don't be afraid. I'm, I'm with you. Same with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's like, look, I'm not doing this. This is a bad idea. I don't want to be a brass wall against which all the nations of the world break themselves. That sounds awful. He says, yeah, but I'm with you. I'm with the church's confidence is not to be found in her native abilities. The church's confidence that there will be nothing that triumphs against her is that she possesses the promise of Emmanuel in its realization in the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules us, he defends us as Emmanuel. The fulfillment of all promises and the flip side of that is that he restrains our enemies which is this last consideration the fact that he can defend his people means that he can restrain that which is hostile to him isn't that what we see everywhere in the gospels? sickness get out storms, be quiet waves, settle down death, no let him go demons, get out Everybody bows to the sun. Every power, principality, and enemy of the gospel can only go as far as the sun says. And he wields that power for the blessing of his church. That's why we can say with confidence that all things must work for our good because there is nothing that falls outside the scope of the one who has died for us, who intercedes for us, and who is returning for us. Right now, the Son allows opponents to persist. He does not take from them what justice demands. He takes from them. He continues to plead with rebels by virtue of his ministers, agents of reconciliation, ambassadors of reconciliation. Look, put down your weapons. Put down your weapons. Put down your weapons. This king is like no other. He delights to welcome enemies. He delights to make enemies into sons, heirs of light. Put down your weapons. Be reconciled unto God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This age of reconciliation continues now as the age of the Lord's favor, but it is limited because he's coming back. That's what Paul says, I mean, in just stunning colors in 2 Thessalonians 1. Starting in verse 7. He's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul makes a similar plea in Romans 2. Don't presume upon the Lord's kindness. Don't presume upon the Lord's gifts, which he gives indiscriminately right now, all of which is given to lead you to repentance. So also now we know Christ as lamb. The world knows him as lamb. Our salvation to know him as lamb, but he's coming as a lion. And he's going to destroy all of his enemies and ours because he's made us his own and everyone who opposes us opposes him or everyone who opposes him opposes us and all of those who stand against the true and living God on that day will be done away with and there's encouragement in this to us to press on and to wait with patience Because the return of the king and the triumph of good and the writing of holiness and righteousness and peace, all in all, is not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And if something is certain, then one can wait for it with patience. For the thing that you wait for is guaranteed. It's assured. It's not a matter of whether it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if Christ is going to fulfill his word. Because he's always faithful to his word. And thus it falls to God's people once more to entrust ourselves to this faithful king, even in the face of the seemingly triumphant powers of evil in this present age. This is why we can endure. And not only endure, but endure in hope and endure in love. For we know that as seemingly inevitable as the triumph of evil looks to the natural eye, we know the end of the story. It is the triumph of the Lamb. It is the glory of God made all in all when the one who has commenced our salvation in his life and his death and his ministry now at the right hand of the Father fulfills that last great act which he has promised to do, which is to take us unto himself in a kingdom of glory and blessedness forevermore. This is your future, church. May he give us the eyes to live in the light of its certainty. Let's pray. How great thou art, our God, the king that you have sent forth, in the fullness of time born of a woman born under the law. How wonderful is our Lord. Enable us to see the riches of his beauty and the blessing that has passed unto us in being brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son, and enable us to walk in the light of this King and this kingdom by the power of his Spirit. For we ask in Christ's name, Amen.